everybody, you are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church for the church. My name is Kirk Miller, and today I have with me Tim Cooper. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thank you, Kirk. Tim Cooper is professor of church history at the University of Otago in New Zealand. He teaches on the global history of Christianity and has published works on Richard Baxter, John Owen, 17th century English antinomians, Congregationalists and Separatists, as well as Calvinism within the Puritan tradition. Recently, he has abridged and updated two of Richard Baxter's classic texts, one of which we will be discussing today, which is called The Reformed Pastor. And so let me begin uh, this discussion by simply asking you, who is Richard Baxter? Some of us may be familiar with him. I imagine a lot of our listeners probably are not. So can you just help us understand who who he was? Sure, Kirk. So uh, Baxter was an important figure in 17th century England. Uh, He was a Puritan pastor, author, and leader. So let me briefly explain those words. Puritan means that he wanted to purify the Church of England from all human innovation and return it to its scriptural model uh, and to see it improved and to see its work go on really, really well. So a reformed pastor is one who operates out of deep conviction of what the the scriptures say the life of faith is to be uh, and how the church is to look. Uh, that makes him a Puritan. Uh, takes He takes his faith very, very seriously. Uh, he was a pastor, so he was a minister in the parish church of Kidderminster during the late 1640s and 1650s. Uh, did some important work that we're going to come and talk about soon. Uh, he was a prolific writer and author. He wrote around 140 books in the course of his life, some of them extremely long, uh, all of them weighty uh, and important. Uh, so he's he's a great writer um, and he's an important leader. So he was a leading figure in 17th century England as the country tried to figure out a permanent religious settlement that would uh, reform the Church of England. Trouble was, of course, there were rival visions of what what that reform would look like. Um, And Baxter was never in a position ultimately to shape the direction of the Church of England, but he's a very important voice within it um, in trying to see the church return to its biblical model uh, and and the ways that God intended for it. Yeah. And would you say that um, the reformed pastor is Richard Baxter's most well-known work or most influential work? Those might be slightly different questions, but... Basically, yes, uh, okay. especially among pastors, for the obvious reason that this is a book uh, of great interest to pastors and, and their parishioners. Uh, but yeah, um, there are there are two works that have been published in print ever since. Uh, this is one of them. Um, it's a really important work of Baxter's. Okay. And you started to dip into this a little bit. Can you walk us through some more of the historical circumstances of Baxter's place and time? This is happening... Um, now the, the Reformation as it started, like in Germany, 1517 with Martin Luther, you said this is the 17th century. So this is, I don't, I don't remember the exact date of when the Reformation came to England, but this can't be too long after that. Um, help us understand some of those circumstances into which Baxter is ministering. Sure, Kirk. Thanks. Um, so this is this is the century after the Reformation, but the Reformation is still being fought out, if you like. Um, the, the Church of England is still finding its way. And, and as I said, there are rival visions of how the Reformation should play out and how far it should go. 
Um, and the Puritan vision was very much guided by those reformers, uh, looking back uh, ultimately uh, to figures like Calvin and the other uh, Swiss reformers that had a big influence on the Church of England in the 16th century. In the 17th century, that legacy is being lost. So um, what's happening in the mid-17th century is that a style of theology that we might call Calvinism um, is beginning to recede. It's, it's falling out of favour among the leaders of the Church of England. Uh, and, and that's causing a lot of tension because as it recedes, the Church of England starts to look more and more Roman Catholic. Mm. And uh, England's national identity was formed on anti-Catholicism and the Puritans themselves were deeply anti-Catholic, uh, very fearful of going back to that corruption they saw in the late medieval Catholic Church, rather than going right back to the scriptures and to the beginning, into that pure form of the church. So uh, this is the 17th century is a time of tension uh, for religious reasons, but also for financial and political ones. Uh, king Charles I became king in 1625. He sponsored this religious policy that emphasized not preaching as the Calvinists had done, but more the sacraments and an elevated sacramental style of worship that also looked Roman Catholic. Um, he, after a century of inflation, the parliament couldn't raise enough tax to fund the expenses of the crown. So, so Charles dispensed with parliament um, and, mm. and for 11 years ruled without it and pursued other means of raising revenue. That caused all sorts of uh, aggravation among his subjects. And when, when Parliament was finally reconvened in 1640, all of this came out in, uh, in an explosion of grievance, made worse when there was a, a Catholic rebellion in Ireland that uh, it was alleged Charles himself had sponsored, and that led to civil war. So what you have going on in the 1640s, which is Baxter's immediate context, is a, is a devastating civil war that sweeps through just about all of England uh, and also into Scotland, Wales and Ireland, uh, and and that that is his immediate experience coming into the parish of Kidderminster after the war. Uh, it's a deeply troubling and traumatic time. So he's he's living in he's living in a very difficult age with actual civil war and all sorts of fears and tensions about the future of religion in England. Okay, and maybe um, is it is it true that at this time? We're talking about a situation where there's an established church in the sense of, of like there's an official state sponsored church, the Church of England, uh, or Anglicanism. And that, that's kind of some of the, like in American context, we're, that's kind of foreign to us, the idea of a, a sponsored state church. But is that the exactly. context that he's, yes. that he's working in then? Yes. So these, yes. these sort of state frictions, these, uh, tensions with, you're talking about these different, uh, kings and such. These aren't just like foreign sort of separate discussions from what Baxter is going to be dealing with then. These are going to have immediate ramifications on his ministry. Is that fair? That is absolutely right. So um, we're, we're living still in the age of what you might call Christendom, where church and state are, are heavily overlap and, and just can't be separated. There is only one church. It's the Church of England. Uh, it, it is structured according to dioceses, uh, which is uh, overseen by a bishop, each one, and then within the diocese, uh, a parish. So there's, uh, I think, about 9,000 parishes throughout England, uh, and each one has a priest. Anyone who lives in that parish, and people generally don't move uh, from the parish they're born in, 
at least not very far. Everyone in that parish has to go to that parish church. There is only one there is only one church. Now that's starting to change. Uh, you have the arrival of groups like the Baptists who contemplate separate congregations outside of the Church of England. You have the Congregationalists emerging in the 17th century with a similar sort of tolerance for different congregations, not of everyone who happens to be born in a particular place, which leads to a, a you know a mixed bag, but to um, a voluntary association of the saints, much more like what we see of churches today, where people choose to belong to a particular church. But that's very, very tiny in the 17th century. So the context that Baxter's operating in is one of the parish church model. Now, after the Civil War, um, uh, uh, the <clears throat> much of the Church of England, as it was known, was disestablished. Um, Archbishop William Lord, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was executed uh, in 1646, I think. Uh, the bishops were uh, disestablished. In 1649, the king himself was executed and the monarchy was abolished. So in the 1650s, when Baxter is really coming into his own in ministry, there is no national framework that Parliament has agreed on. Parliament will spend the mm. 1650s trying to find that because it has to be sponsored in the end by Parliament. That's what Christendom means. Mm -hmm. uh, but but what Baxter found is that on the ground, he had a lot of freedom. Since there was no national settlement, oh, sure. he could experiment. Um, and Baxter was a great experimenter. So he in his parish of Kidderminster, he set about the work of pastoral ministry in a very intentional way that bore remarkable fruit in the town of Kidderminster and started to gain a reputation for him uh, throughout the county of Worcestershire and uh, throughout the country. And so he's really living in this time where politically there's battles between a more Protestant Calvinist vision and a Roman Catholic vision of the future of England. And and he's he's one of the ministers within the Anglican Church. Am I understanding that correctly? Uh, he's trying to purify yes, the— absolutely. Trying to bring purity? Yes. Okay. Yes. And then he, he was eventually— he's, he's no separatist. Okay. And eventually he was uh, fired from his parish or, or released due to some of the political results. Is that correct? Yeah, so if I carry on the story, um, the, the Puritans, though, those who wanted to purify the church according to the scriptural model, they had their chance, if you like, in the 1650s. That's when they were aligned with political power. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they were divided, and political power was divided. And this is the age of Oliver Cromwell, who died in September 1658. And after his death, things started to unravel in England until the chaos got so great that in 1660, England voted... Uh, parliament voted to bring back the king so the monarchy was restored the bishops were restored the 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 book of common prayer the liturgy of the church of england was restored it all went back to how it was and and in as, as a consequence of that the restored bishops took their revenge on the puritans mm. and they set the bar for ministry in the church of england so high that no puritan in good conscience could sign up to it. And so Baxter was one of around 2,000 ministers who lost their place of ministry in the Church of England. Um, that's that's when, if you like, he was, he was booted out um, and he would spend the rest of his life, pretty much, he died in 1691, uh, living in an era of, uh, of, of persecution. Um, he was put in prison twice uh, in those 30 years. Uh, and that was an extremely difficult circumstance. So, so Baxter is Baxter is navigating a very difficult century. And apart from the 1650s, which he looked on back on as the best years of his life, 
it was a dogged, difficult existence for someone who was trying to live out faithfully what he felt Scripture was saying to him. Hmm. Um, so let's talk now about the the work the Reformed pastor um, and how it came into being. What were some of the circumstances that give rise to Baxter putting this work into being, composing this? Um, in other words, what is he reacting against? What is he trying to address? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. So um, the the Reformed pastor was published in 1656. So in 1655, right in the middle of the decade, this this decade of remarkable reformation in, in Kidderminster, a, a period of great uh, fruitfulness in Baxter's ministry and a growing national reputation as a pastor, um, Baxter felt that he had latched on to uh, the secret of effective pastoral ministry. And the secret for him was to pick up what, Apostle, what the Apostle Paul had said in Acts chapter 20 about knowing Every individual in the parish, personally, uh, and 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 in order for that to happen, um, Baxter developed this method, whereby two days a week, morning, afternoon, and evening, he and his assistant separately would meet with the families in his parish. That the, the families would come to him, a bit like you go to your doctor and have your appointment. Um, that they would come to him, and and he would talk to them about their faith, test their understanding of Christian doctrine address i think any pastoral issues that they might have had uh and and so once a year he and his assistant would cycle through all the families in the parish who were willing to sub submit themselves to this practice so for two days a week two full days he and his assistant would do this work and and he he felt that through that and through other components of pastoral ministry such as very effective preaching um, effective systems of discipline, that is, of addressing sinfulness in the congregation, um, through all of these practices, being very intentional and methodical, he he reformed the town. Um, he uh, nominal Christians, those who who simply were Christians in name because they were born in England and born into a parish, actually their faith came alive. So there was a there was a pronounced evangelical concern to what he was doing. There was a mission sense, and uh, that he was seeking to save souls who otherwise were heading for hell. And it was so successful that uh, that he he shared it and and he shared it with his fellow ministers in the county of Worcestershire, and and they formed in the early 1650s what was called the Worcestershire Association. So they would meet month these ministers and they would talk about difficult cases of pastoral care encourage each other and also they would preach to each other they, they would they would spur each other on and in 1655 they set aside a day for Baxter to teach them about his method of pastoral care in Kidderminster and it was his chance to encourage them to take up this hard work because it was very very hard work it was uh, almost unheard of no one else did this in 1650s England. Baxter pioneered it, shared it with his fellow ministers. So uh, now, in the end, he, he was sick on the day. He, he suffered from ill health through the course of his life, um, but he'd written it down. So uh, effectively, the reformed pastor is what he was going to say to those ministers. And now he was saying it not just to the ministers of Worcestershire, but to a whole country. Um, and and the book would be uh, very effective and reach reach Christians and ministers all over the place, and um, and and that's where it comes from. So so what he's reacting against 
I think, is an understanding of pastoral ministry that says Sunday is all you need. Preaching is all you need. You can be an effective pastor and and not pay close attention to the individual personal lives of your flock. And he challenged that uh, very profoundly. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I just pulled up Acts 20. Uh, this is, in many ways, you could say, and I think I think you argue this or give this as the a bit in the preface is like his reformed pastor is kind of an exposition yep. of some of these exactly. verses in yep. uh, these lines yep. in Acts 20. So Acts 20 yep. verse 28, this is Acts 20 is Paul's message uh, to his farewell message to the elders from Ephesus as he's traveling back to Rome and he meets them in Miletus. And he says in verse 28, pay, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit yep. has made you overseers yep. to care for the church of God. So there's this yep. idea of um, it's not just, like you said, ministering publicly on Sunday, but there's yep. a, there's actually a paying attention to the flock. There's a knowing of the flock. I think of 1 Peter 5, I think it's 1 Peter 5 where Peter says, you know, uh, I, I exhort my fellow elders among you uh, to care for the flock of God. Among He uses this language of among you, those who are among you. Yep. So it's yep. knowing, obviously there's, a, yep. there's that implied sense of knowing those are among you or mm. in verse mm-hmm. 20, he says, um, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house. So this, yep. there's Paul's ministry is actually, it's actually meeting with people house to house. Um, today, maybe that takes the form of meeting you with you over coffee in a coffee shop as well, but these sort of informal, um, one-on-one, smaller group, personal touches from the pastor caring for you and applying God's word individually. Yeah, oh, look, Kirk, thank you for bringing us those verses because that's really clarifying and helpful. That, what you've said is exactly right. So so Baxter puts together the idea of going from house to house and not just ministering in public, um, but also paying attention to all the flock, um, all the flock. Uh, and and that means knowing them individually and personally. Now, the, the parish of Kidderminster, we don't know exactly how many people lived in the parish, probably around 2,000. Um, that's a lot of people to know. Now, the system that Baxter created was voluntary. People had to willingly submit to it. So around 600 would would uh, consider themselves to be taking part in what Baxter was offering. So that, that that's the 600 he worked with uh, in the town. That, those are the 600 that he met with um, across the course of a year. And he's taking seriously what Paul is saying to to pay attention to all all the flock. Now, he didn't go from house to house in the, in the sense you know, that he went to their house. They came to him. But the effect is the same. Mm-hmm. They're still meeting individually with him um, and, and receiving his care. So we talked, we touched a little bit on this in terms of we're already getting into Baxter's view of pastoral ministry. But if we were to step back and look at all the elements together, um, how might you summarize Baxter's pastoral theology? That is his view of the pastor and what pastoral ministry is. If you were to try to get into Baxter's head and present some of the key convictions, the key features that he would want, mm-hmm. that you would suspect he would bring forth. Yeah. Um, he he would want a minister to be intentional and methodical and systematic in all aspects of pastoral care. So a key to that is preaching. <clears throat> He was a very great believer in, in preaching. He was a very effective communicator. There's no doubt about that. Um, a lot of his books actually are sermons that he's okay, yeah. that he's he's put into writing. <clears throat> 
So um, preaching is very, very important for, for Baxter. But it's insufficient in itself. Uh, it, it, it can't do the whole job. And, and in some ways, he, what he, he saw these individual conversations as mini sermons, preached not to a whole congregation, but preached to the people right in front of him, to their particular needs and concerns in their context. Uh, and, and he felt that that was much more effective because they were really listening. You know, we, we're so well practiced, I think, in sitting in church on Sunday morning and letting the sermon wash over us and have and not have much impact. I'm, I'm sure it was the same in the 17th century. Uh, well, here in an individual setting, that became much harder to, to do. The person had to actually listen because there was direct eye contact. Uh, eye contact, and, and Baxter was talking specifically to them. So it's that kind of attention that he felt was required through the course of life. So he wanted he wanted children um, to be to to learn the catechism. So a, a catechism is a big part of his approach. A catechism is a list of questions and answers that was designed to be memorized, and it helped people to understand Christian doctrine. And that's what he'd test them on when they came to him. So he used a catechism. Um, when when a child who had been baptized as an infant, which is the practice in the Church of England. Uh, but came to an age of understanding they would be confirmed in their faith. And, and unlike so many others who were indifferent about that, and uh, he re paid real attention to that and made sure they did actually understand the faith mm -hmm. when they were confirmed. Um, and, and then th through the course of life, he, he was super aware of the life of faith as a difficult and long pilgrimage. And it, it, it needed um, investment and support from the, the pastor. So the, the pastor is a, a critical figure in the parish. The, the pastor is a bit like a, a bishop. He, he really conceived of the bishop not as someone overseeing thousands of souls and hundreds of parishes, but as, as the minister in his own parish, in his own church, supported and enabled by elders who helped him in the work of pastoral ministry. But um, but the pastor took a leading key and personal role. And I think the interesting thing about Baxter is that while he has to call on an assistant, and actually, you, you know, uh, uh, he's paying that assistant. Baxter gets not much income, but he devotes a portion of that income to paying this assistant for this work. He takes enormous responsibility for the care of the souls in his parish because he's acutely aware that they are just a moment away from eternity and and their souls are destined for heaven or hell and he will lay himself out to the utmost to ensure that he has done everything he can that is in his responsibility to ensure that they know all they need to know to find their way to heaven. Um, it's a, it's a, as I said earlier, it's a deeply evangelical concern. It's a sense of mission. Mm. The 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 parish is is a place of mission for Baxter, uh, and that's what drives him and animates him is because for him the stakes are just so very high. Yeah, I remember in reading the book, it it stood out to me like he has this assumption like. The pastor ought to know everyone in the church. Like there's a there's an expectation, and I think that can 
that can go a bit against maybe sometimes what people experience today in churches where maybe they're a part of a church where they don't, they, they obviously know who the pastor is, but the pastor has no idea who they are. Yeah. Um, Baxter would probably challenge whether that pastor is actually your pastor. If he doesn't even know who you are, how can he actually be your pastor? How can he pastor you beside, I mean, he may be a preacher, but how is he your pastor? Um, and even the idea of a catechism, like the back of the, in the appendix of the book, you include, and I'm assuming he included in the original version, the yep. little uh, catechism. And so just imagine, I would just want you to think about that if you're listening to this, just imagine if, uh, if your pastor, you know, is a regular practice for him to come to the home, make sure you have, you know, you've memorized and you understand the catechism, these core elements of the faith, and he's doing that with the children. And really, like you said, for even with the idea of confirmation, wanting to make sure these children actually understand, our church doesn't practice infant baptism. We would hold the believer's baptism, but you might say it's comparable to taking uh, the membership interview really seriously. Like when someone comes into the church, not just like willy nilly letting anybody in, but wanting to make sure when we admit someone into the church, do they really understand the gospel? Um, and taking care over people very seriously from, from the church's and the pastor's perspective. Um, you also, I, I believe you included this, um, in the book, you include little introductions to every chapter and there's a helpful preface and stuff. Um, I believe you mentioned that it was common for pastors in that day to be quite sluggish and to kind of be negligent in their work. Um, so how does past, pa uh, Richard Baxter's view of pastoral ministry, um, kind of meet or confront those tendencies that he saw in his own context? Yeah, that's that's another good question, Kirk. Um, yeah, first of all, in his own context, uh, he was aware of how few pastors did this, um, how few pastors took seriously the practice of church discipline, which uh, is not to sound severe, but it's actually this intentional looking after the souls uh, of parishioners and and guarding against sin in their lives and in the in the community. Uh, he he was he was aware of the effort it took. It took a lot of effort. It, it took a lot of time. Um, he, he, you know, at one point he he talks about the the lice that his parishioners leave behind in his study. Uh, that's just one small example of the sacrifice mm. that it took to uh, to do this work, and and generally ministers didn't do it. Um, so he's he's really challenging them in their setting to pick up this work and actually make it happen. Now, what the the what about our context? Our context is so different from his. So we, we no longer live in a world where there's one parish church that by definition has, you know, 2,000 souls is a lot. That's a lot to work with. Um, but uh, the numbers are kind of controlled and and it's sort of straightforward. What, who, who is your flock and what the task is? We we live in an age of uh, where, where, as you say, in, in, in North America or around the world, you can you can choose from any number of churches where you go, and people do choose. We we live in an age of consumerism where people go from church to church seeking the style or or, or the worship or whatever it is that they're looking for. That's that's so different. So how does this translate um, into our context? I, I think this is one of the great challenges of Baxter's book. It it's it's timeless. It's a timeless classic in in the sense that it's working with Acts twenty, which is still in our Bibles. But how do we take what he says and how do we apply it to our own setting? 
especially in the age of the megachurch or, or very, very large churches and, and the, the big figure up the front, the big pastor, the big name. Um, how on earth do we take seriously what Baxter is calling us to uh, in terms of that intimate soul care from those who are our pastors? That, that, boy, that's a challenge that takes some negotiating. We really need to think hard about that. Yeah. Let me press into that further because that was the next question I had. How is Richard Baxter's view of pastoral ministry different than how many today would conceive of the work of the pastor? So here I'm asking you to not just be yeah. a church historian, but to be a bit of a contemporary exegete as well as we trying to dissect yeah. and understand our current culture. Yeah, no, thanks for um, giving me the opportunity, Kirk. I, I will say uh, for four years I was involved and in, I was leading a church. Um, I have been in pastoral ministry, so I, I'm familiar with the work and I know how difficult it is. I, I think what, what sets Baxter apart is his intensity. Uh, it was one of my concerns in, in putting together the abridgment is that Baxter sets a very, very high bar, a very high bar. His, his, his efforts are heroic. Um, and if you're not careful, uh, any minister reading it uh, is going to feel second rate and inadequate and just give up um, before he or she even starts. Uh, so um, I didn't want that to happen. Um, we just need to negotiate that. Baxter sets a very high bar. We we don't have to do everything in the way that he says. Um, but what I, where I think it, it, it Baxter is so helpful is that he does call us to a higher standard for our pastoral ministry. And he makes it very clear that we need to do this well and take it seriously and give it our every effort that we can. Um, now, if I were talking to pastors, I'd say be very careful about that because burnout is one of the obvious likely results of taking Baxter at his word. Um, I'm not at all for a moment recommending a life that leads to burnout in ministry. That's too common as it is. But, but we need to take him seriously uh we need to hear his voice and and that means thinking about i suppose the systems of pastoral care in our church now um baxter might well say to us your churches are too big you you as the pastor are too far removed from your people and maybe we need to just let that sit with us that question maybe our churches are too big uh, but if we're being realistic and pragmatic, the churches are what they are. And so within those churches, we need to think, how does individual soul care happen? And is it intentional and is it meth methodical? That's what Baxter would look for, I think. Um, and I wonder if in our churches we leave that too much to, uh, well, I was going to say chance, um, leave that too much to it just happen on its own um, and sort of hope that it's happening. And, and sort of think that it might be happening, but not really measuring that or or establishing that. So, yeah, in a in a big church, we need to we need to think about uh, those systems of pastoral care, I suppose, uh, and and making sure that each individual Christian in our church is being challenged in their faith, is being tested, is 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 um, is being helped helped with their questions, helped with their doubts, helped with their life issues and concerns. Um, but above all, having a sense of who the flock are. We have, if we're a minister, we've been entrusted with this flock. This is this is the church uh, for whom Christ died. Uh, and, and Baxter would want us to take that extremely seriously. We have a, an enormous responsibility if we're in ministry. 
so even even if but if we're not in ministry, of course, then we can also think about our own church and our setting and the kind of pastoral care that we're receiving. And we we can have a voice. We we can help to shape things and even bring a bit of Baxter's voice into what goes on in our church. Yeah, and I hope that this podcast is. I mean, we're the the primary audience of this podcast is your average Christian, like folks in my church specifically. And um, there may be others from other churches that happen to listen to this as well, but I'm thinking of people in my own church. Um, in other words, this is something I obviously think is valuable for the average Christian to know, not just other pastors who, you know, will likely read Richard Baxter's book or might be interested in a topic mm-hmm. like this. But this is important for your average Christian, your average church member to know so they, they can hold up this sort of ministry. I think, as you, as you said, Richard Baxter might look at our churches, average. Um, well, I think the average church actually in America at this point, statistically, the last statistic I saw was 60 people. But there are <laughs> lots of really, really big churches and more. Yeah. there are more Christians who are members of or attend, maybe not members, but at least attend uh, like more mega churches, just given their size, even though the average church is smaller than that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And he probably would look at it and say it's too big. And that's um, that's we we as a church want to value having a church that's not too large. Um, it's never been an issue yet, but um, the idea of planting versus expanding, sometimes I'll encounter people where um, it's kind of assumed, like when you get bigger, your church will just keep getting bigger and you create this mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. monstrosity of a system. Um, but what does that do to pastoral care? Um, I think those are questions you have to think through um, in terms of the size of the church, the the ability to provide pastoral care and know people. I also think it challenges, because when you read Baxter's work, as you said, it can kind of be um, almost discouraging if you feel like, mm-hmm. oh, one more thing I have to do. And this is not mm-hmm. even just one more thing. He took two days out of his week, like meeting with people, getting to know people, providing immediate pastoral care. That's a lot to ask. And so, yeah, if you simply, if a pastor was listening to this and simply felt they needed to add that on top of everything else, that probably would be unrealistic because we might actually need to say, well, what are some things I need to give up in order to do this? Not just add this, but in the American church, a lot of pastors are expected to be more than just pastors nowadays. We're expected to be website managers. We're expected to be social media managers and content creators and social outreach event de- uh, developers. And, and we're expected to be all these sort of things. Um, and what would it look like to actually say, you know, maybe pastors need to pull it back and just focus, focus on the essentials of what is actual pastoral ministry. And maybe it also looks like uh, reviving a healthy, uh, deacon ministry and all member ministries for some of these other areas that are also needful and helpful, but to allow pastors to really focus in on pastoral ministry. In other words, all that to say, I'm, I'm kind of going long winded, but it may be more than just asking, Oh, we need to add this to our list, but actually going back to the drawing board and considering other things that we've been, um, uh, that have already been taking up a lot of our margin, so to say, so that we're not able to do this sort of thing. Um, I, I, go ahead. Yeah, I, Kirk, I think you're, that's very helpful. Uh, you can't possibly add this in. Um, and nor am I advocating that the, this has to be the same. Um, Baxter's method worked for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may well not work for us, but we need to find out what does work for us. And, and I, maybe the idea of reformation is still a helpful one. Um, we need to figure out what the point is, what the core is, what the call is on us uh, if we're in ministry or if we're not in ministry. What is what is the church here for? Uh, and, and what is most important? And if we've allowed um, 
well, the Puritans would call them human innovations. Uh, things have crept in that are that are simply the product of the human brain uh, and not actually part of what Scripture gives us. Then we need to clear those away. We need to to clear out those accretions and go back to the heart of things. Go back to the root of things. Um, and and figure out what is most important, and then start from there. And uh, well, Baxter would point us to Acts twenty and to Paul's speech to those elders, and say, "Well, what are you going to do with that speech? What do, what does that mean for you uh, as pastors, and then as parishioners, as church members? What does it mean for us? Um, because it calls us to a high bar as well. It means that 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 we can't get away with just keeping ourselves private." We we can't uh, we can't go on keeping the walls up uh, between us and those who have oversight over us. Uh, we we ourselves need to realise that the stakes are high. We ourselves need to know that this is a long and difficult pilgrimage, and uh, we need. Help. God has ordained that we have that help in the form of those who have oversight, and so we need to give them that oversight. Um, we need to allow them in. This was at the heart of Baxter's system. Only 600 did that out of around 2,000. Right? So, the, And if, if only 100 had done that, well, his job would have been easier, but uh, that's all. Um, that would not be good. So it, it, it takes both the, the minister, the pastor, to take this work seriously and the people themselves to take this work seriously. And, and to give themselves up to it and, and to um, give give away some of their their sort of their privacy um, that is instinctively so important to us, to us as individuals these days uh, actually to let to let others in uh, that feels risky um, that feels costly we don't know where that will take us um, but that's what God's calling us to that's our part we we, we have to enable this oversight. If we don't enable it, it can't happen. Yeah, that's good. Because in as much as we're talking about pastoral ministry, we're talking about Richard Baxter's vision of pastoral ministry in as much as it reflects Acts 20. One, like you said, that's going to look different. That's potentially going to look different for people. Um, it's not that we have to emulate every little detail of mm. Baxter's system, but we mm -hmm. should obey the scripture injunctions that he's drawing our attention to. Yes. Um, yes. In as much as we're talking about pastoral ministry, though, if, if you're not a pastor, this isn't an irrelevant conversation for you, because in as much as this shapes your view of the pastor, it then also just implicitly shapes, it should shape your view of, of what it means to be a congregant, someone under mm. pastoral care. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, a pastoral theology isn't just for pastors, it's for congregants mm. in as much as what does it look like for you to uh, reciprocate that vision in terms of how you receive pastoral care, the sort of pastoral care you expect. Like you said, if if it's the pastor's job to get to know you and hold you accountable and to, to aid you, um, and that's not a one-way street. Of course, you can help the pastor too in his life. But but in as much as it's his sort of official capacity to do that for you, th that implies that you're going to be open and you're going to want to receive that and you're going to allow that to happen. Um, I, I think the the letter of Hebrews where it talks about letting the leaders uh, mm. carry out their ministry willingly, like, like not begrudgingly because that would be of no advantage to you. Mm -hmm. um, and it also means that it's going to shape what the sort of pastoral ministry we demand of our pastors. It's very common, I think, in the American church where pastors have almost taken on the shape of more of an, a business entrepreneur or a CEO. Um, and so they're running a successful organization. That's kind of what we expect from them. And, and the demands that they hear in their ears. Well, what if 
our congregants had more of the vision of Richard Baxter, and that was what they were demanding of their pastor, to actually be not a CEO, but a shepherd of their soul. Um, that's going to result in a very different church. That's going to support their pastor as they carry out this mission. Yeah. Okay, let me ask you this question. Um, if Richard Baxter was going to write this book today, if he was putting together this message for a fellowship of pastors today— um, in our context, what do you think he might say? Would he say the same thing? Do you think he'd address things slightly differently? I'm asking you uh, to speculate. Yeah, <laughs> uh, let, let me speculate for a moment. I, fundamentally, I don't think his message would change. I think his, mm. he'd be, just be more horrified by what he's seeing. So so assuming he were able to, to look at the ministry today and, and the church in, say, North America, um, I think he he, uh, he 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 would be so much that that would uh, he would be quite scathing about. Um, what what would he be scathing about? He, I think inevitably this is this is what I teach my students when I teach them church history, is that the um, the remarkable thing about the Christian faith is that it can adapt to any time and place that you put it in. It's so versatile in that sense. Um, but in adapting to the culture, inevitably, to some extent, it buys into the culture. And and some things are gained and some things are lost. And we have our blind spots. And uh, I think that the church today will have its blind spots. It will have its blind spots about um, two big ones that come to mind are consumerism uh, and entertainment. Uh, we, we, we live in a culture of both, a culture of consumerism, a culture of entertainment. Uh Baxter would be absolutely horrified at the amount of time we spend watching Netflix uh, mm. or, or some form of streaming television. Uh, he, he, the, the Puritans were big on never wasting a moment because life is short and eternity is long and you did not waste time. I mean, that's how he wrote 140 books, all with, with ink and quill. Um, he did not waste a moment. He, he, would, he would challenge that in us and he would challenge us on our consumerism um and and just our, our comfort our affluence that i know is relative uh, there are inequalities in western societies but in general we, we live in an age of remarkable affluence compared to previous ages um uh, it's it's and we just don't see it so we we buy into that and and i think that this is the the great thing about baxter is that while i wouldn't want to impose his voice on all of us it is a voice we need to hear because it speaks to us from a different age it speaks to us from outside our culture it it can identify and help us to see our own blind spots because he's coming from such a different place and i i would want him to speak from that place um because because we need to hear that. That's what we need to hear. We need to be able to see ourselves for what we are. And I, I think when he comes to us in this book with a simple message that, that eternity is close and everything is at stake, and that needs to energize the mission, the sense of mission for the pastor, and it needs to energize the sense of uh, attentiveness and dedication and concern on on the part of those people in churches just like us um, we all need to hear that message so he he i think would would quite sternly challenge us on what we're doing with our time and our money um, he would urge us to focus on the things that matter for eternity uh, to be far less concerned uh, with 
the ways of this world and the things that it offers. Uh, and in terms of being a part of a congregation and a church, I, I, I think he'd want uh, to call us to that higher bar of, of keeping together collectively that sense of what matters and of how important, how profoundly important this stuff is, uh, and not to be taken in so much by the culture around us, um, but to, um, to be guided by the, the weight that Scripture gives. And, I mean, just those verses that you mentioned, Kirk, you know, not just from Acts 20, but from Hebrews, about what it means to, to be in a church, to be part of the body, and to be under leadership. Um, we need to to take that seriously. So I think he'd still he'd still be a, an uncomfortable voice to listen to. He was in his own day, yeah. um, e- even more so now, um, just because we've drifted so far from that age. I was just thinking as you're talking, like even in that day and age, you know, prior to the automobile and mass transportation and stuff, and people mm-hmm. kind of the parish they were born in, that's where they're going to be. There is more of a this is your church. You're going to, this is your congregation. And nowadays yep. it just feeds our yep. consumerism. We tend to think of consumerism yep. in, in, in other categories, but we can also be consumeristic when we just get up and bounce to another church whenever we don't like something like the pastoral care that we oh, were yeah. offered. Maybe the pastor yeah, yeah. challenges us on something or says something we don't like, but we need to hear. There can be consumerism. It may not be the consumerism of going to the church that has the fog machine and the, and the big band, but it could be the consumerism of just finding uh, someone who says the things that I want to hear and um, receiving pastoral care, um, receiving care from each other as a church, even outside of pastoring just in general can be uh it's not always fun to have people hold you accountable and try to help no. you grow no and so i think baxter no. i wonder if he would uh look at just the different dynamics that we live in and see the problem of our ability to shift churches whenever we feel like it because we have a yeah. car and we can easily go somewhere else yeah um uh, look i uh, that's a real problem for what baxter is calling us to it's a real problem um, I can remember being in pastoral ministry um, and looking out at the church and and the numbers would sort of stay the same. This was a, a church of about 100, 120. Um, and the, the numbers would stay the same, but there would always be new faces. And and I used to think, where did, where did people go? Like, we've got new people. Where did someone must have gone if our numbers are going up? <laughs> yeah. And and you just can't keep track of people. They come in and they go out. It's it's like I don't know a washing machine. The the, church, the the various churches are just they're swirling around. Um, we're slot with the water is sloshing all over the place. Uh, that is such a challenge for this kind of ministry, and 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 you know my 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 encouragement to those of us in churches is is just stay where you are. Um, <laughs> As as I look again, I'll tell you what I tell my my students of church history. I say that the church is is populated by humans. Um, it's um it's it's good and it's bad. No church, no church is perfect. Um, you might suffer offence in this church, or or just be disgruntled or unhappy with some aspect of it. Well, don't go to another one because there'll just be another aspect that you're unhappy with. Um, it, stay where you are. Just be disciplined. Be be faithful. Um, I'm not saying you can never leave a church, but sure. it's far too easy for us to decide that that we're unhappy with the way things are in our church and we're going to move on. And I think I think Baxter would challenge that. It's not about our comfort. Uh, it's about our growth. It's about our discipleship. It's it's about growing in holiness, and that takes 
discipline. And we're not a culture that's very good on discipline. Um, but but Baxter would 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 call us out on that, uh, and and would call us into a life of discipline, uh, whether whether we're in ministry or we're not. It, it's the, the Puritan vision of of life is one of of disciplined obedience um, and intentionality as as we go through this long and difficult pilgrimage. Um, that, that there's something in there that I think we need to hear, where it's just so easy to take the the easy option. Um, and and to think the grass might be greener in some other church. Well, you know, it it basically won't be. Um, if I if if you'll allow me to to quote Eugene Peterson, the fleas come with the dog. Uh, churches are just imperfect, um, and far better, in my view, to remain in the church we're in and seek to, like Baxter did, just reform it from within, uh, and 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 through the hard graft of staying in and and persevering and and forgiving offense and overlooking weakness lifting the bar and and together corporately um refreshing our vision of what the christian life is together and what life as a church should be i think he'd call us to that i i I think i don't think i'm just projecting my own views on baxter i I think he'd struggle with well i I know that in his own day even with the the tiny amount of choice that was there with the emergence of the congregationalists he had no time for that instinct no time at all uh you did not leave you did not leave the parish church as imperfect as it was you did not leave to form some congregation of the elite you stuck at it because above all, it was a mission field, and we're all in this together. So um, he he was very very strongly against that separatist instinct, and I think maybe that would translate into uh, a, a very stern caution against thinking we can just move from church to church. That nothing will um, nothing will get in the way of his vision for pastoral ministry more than that endless recycling of Christians from one church to another. Mm. Yeah, because it, it 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 severs that ability that it, it, you have to start over getting the pastor getting to know oh, you things like that. Yeah, so that vision of the pastor starting knowing over. you and yeah. even knowing you over a course of a lifetime or an extended period of time. I suppose part of that is also the pastor's moving on every three years on the other side of it. So uh, you, yes. you want is that yes. stability from both directions. Um, yeah. And this is where just going back to even just the idea of learning from church history. Um, you were saying this is why it's helpful to be able to listen to uh, Baxter because it's coming from a different time. I, I just got back from visiting one of our uh, partners in Ethiopia, a church that our church mm. has a relationship with there. And I was just mm. able to learn immensely just by being saturated in their own culture. And you just yep. start to see sort of the blind spots mm. of your own culture. Mm. And, and, and I think a lot of, um, a lot of us sort of know that if we've traveled, outside of America, or even if we've had missionaries come and visit our churches, we kind of know we can learn from other cultures. We can do that as well with church history. I mean, church history is has value beyond that, but that's one of the areas that church history can provide us, is it can provide us a window from sort of another culture of people who yep. hold the same convictions as us, at least generally speaking. Mm-hmm. And they can, they can, we can see some of their blind spots, but they can also show us some of our blind spots. And there's yep. a lot to be learned from someone like Richard Baxter then. Um, So how can the average church member today then help foster and return to this vision of the pastorate? What practical things can we do to support this view of the pastorate in our own Mm -hmm. local churches? Yeah. Well, um, to start off with, I mean, you you need to support your pastor. Now, your pastor might not even want to buy into this. 
um, and and that's going to be a challenge. And, and I don't think it's uh, up to us just to nag our pastors to do things that we want them to do. Um, that that pastors experience enough of that already. Uh, but st- still, um, discussing this, uh, asking questions, just asking good questions, um, and just beginning to tease at the idea that we could be more intentional about how we go about this in our church. Um, if our if our pastor is open to uh, the kind of approach that that we're talking about here, then he's going to need our support. Um, he's he's going to need allies. I think we we can be allies in this work. Uh, there are going to be people in the congregation who just don't understand where this might be coming from, um, who might be alarmed by it or offended or or think that the pastor should just butt out of their lives and so should everyone else. Uh, so we can be allies of our, our pastor in, in in seeking to help others to see the value um, of this approach. Uh, so I think that's uh, that's a good thing we can do. We we can we can even begin to model it. Um, and you know, in the absence of a pastor who's willing to lead this, it may be just simply being more intentional when we're in the groups that we're in. Uh, it might be a, a small group during the week. Maybe, maybe if we're in the mode of a midweek Bible study, and, and I don't know where um, people will be at with this, uh, maybe it's shifting that slightly, not away from Bible study because that's fantastic, but uh, to, to definitely making sure we're talking about real life as it is and opening ourselves up to others and being honest about the kind of things that are going on inside our own minds and hearts and souls. Uh, about the difficulties, the sins, the temptations, uh, and keeping ourselves mutually accountable. Um, maybe if if it's not going to be led from the top, if you like, we just infiltrate this from below uh, and and find like-minded brothers and sisters who who will uh, join us in this work, so that we're kind of making it real for ourselves to the extent that we can with the influence we have, which is going to be limited um, in any given church. So I think finding these ways to um, to take what Baxter is saying in this book and and just make it real wherever we can, I think that that would be productive and fruitful. And and don't underestimate that backed up with with prayer and a sense of discernment, um, just how much fruit that might bear over time as we as we start to shift the culture, and and change the language and change the thinking about how we live out the Christian faith in in community. And uh, what practical things can the average church member do to receive this sort of care from their pastor, assuming their pastors are are either full on board with this or at least somewhere yep. along the lines of, of really wanting to care for them personally? Yep. So let's assume that the, you've got a supportive pastor who's, you know, read Baxter and and thinks I'm, I'm going, I want to take this seriously. Uh um, then I think offering the pastor uh, encouragement for a start is super important. Um, uh, as I discovered when I were, myself was in pastoral ministry, it's far harder than it looks from the outside. Far harder. Uh, uh, it's got its own unique demands. It's uh, and and I think you really only appreciate those demands when you're in it. Uh, so your pastor needs your support. Um, support him in this. Uh, and that means vocalizing that so that when you're having conversations with others in the in the congregation uh, and they kind of say something a bit dismissive or negative about this, that you just speak up for it. 
and you raise the value of it and you endorse it and support it, that that kind of um, support is is invaluable. Um, specifically, encourage your pastor. They get very little encouragement. They get a lot of criticism. So uh, encourage them in this work. Um, see if you you might have some practical skills that can help out. It might take a level of organisation and administration, and maybe maybe you can help to do that, um, so that uh, as much as possible the the labour is taken out of this for for the pastor. There, there may be ways you can support um, and modelling too. I think so. Actually, be showing yourself to be open. To, to show yourself that you're willing to take down those barriers, to, to open the front door, um, to, to let your pastor in and to have these kind of conversations uh, and, and to help others to see that you're having them, you're appreciating them, it's good for you uh, and it's good for them as well. And that, that kind of modelling and encouragement, I think, will help um, just to shift the culture in a congregation more in the way uh, of this direction. Great. So if you had one final word as to why this vision of pastoral ministry is so important for the church today, her health, her ability to pursue the mission, um, any final words you'd want to offer? Uh, it's to, just to reinforce all the threads that I think we've, you know, have woven into our, our, our conversation, Kirk. Um, just to hear from Baxter, the very high priority. Uh, just to get a sense of his his priorities, what is most important, and and then to look around uh, at our own experience of the church and think, uh, where, where are our priorities? If you look at where we're putting our time and our money and our conversation uh, and and our investments, what's what's most important for us, and are they the same things? Because I do think that the the Puritans, and and they can be critiqued, and I will critique them, but they they do they got their priorities in order, uh, and. And, I, and that's super helpful to, to, to see and hear. And above all, souls are precious. And as I say, eternity is long. Um, and given those two truths, what, what can we change now to, to reflect that more sincerely and more intentionally? So, um, yeah, a lot, a lot of this is about being methodical and intentional and disciplined about the the most important priorities that God has indicated to us in His Word, uh, and if that kind of instinct can guide the life of our church, then I think that's all to the better. Good, thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Tim. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and thank you for being willing to teach us some of these things. Well, it's a pleasure. I I uh, I. I I love talking about Baxter. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, it's shutting me up. That's the problem. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks to you, Kirk. And thanks to your listeners who have uh, have listened this far. And think it's just a great opportunity. Thank yeah. You. And be sure to pick up a copy of the book if you're interested. Uh, the Reformed Pastor, It's uh, the subtitle will be something like Updated and Abridged. Um, Tim Cooper is is the one who did that updating and a bridge. You can find that. That's from Crossway Publishers. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.